Criminal Behaviorology. I'm your host for Criminal Behaviorology, Timothy Joseph. I hope that my voice sounds better than it did when I was at the Substance Use and Addiction Conference. I was a little under the weather, so it's taken me a while to get things together and feel a little bit better and report to you what went on there in Washington, D.C., at the Association for Behavior Analysis International Substance Use and Addiction Conference in Washington, D.C., November 19th and 20th. This was the first of its kind of a conference like this, and I'd not heard of this being covered anywhere other than at the ABAI. And it was every now and then they have a, a specialty conference about theory. Um, they've, they've covered other special areas. Autism is a yearly conference now. And of course they have the annual conference. So I, for this one, and particularly in the field we're at, uh, this was an interest of mine, and it's quite relevant to this particular field, the intersection of behavior analysis and crime. It was uh, I thought it would be a little more well attended than it was, but it was we were approaching the Thanksgiving break and other things are going on. I, I did get the sense that there were more professionals there than just those in behavior analysis this time around. So that's that's a good sign. I'm going to go a little bit of a from the program overview. And by the way, I will say it was a good time to visit Washington, D.C. We got a nice look at the monuments, the museums, the uh, I think it's the sea, uh Sea, Air, and Space Museum uh, was was one we got a chance to visit. Uh, it's always worth it to visit Washington D.C. It's uh, most almost all the things you'll want to see are completely free, so I highly recommend it any time of the year. It wasn't that cold. Nice visit. Back to the conference, and I I had a reason to be there other than. To report this to you now, I had a I was part of the poster presentations, which I'll go over with you uh, here in a little bit. But starting out uh, Monday, November nineteenth, of course, they had the opening remarks. They had uh, some coverage of uh, delay discounting, experimental manipulations of delay discounting by Gregory Madden, Utah State University. Uh, Delay Discounting and Genetics of Impulsivity, Susan H. Mitchell, Oregon Health and Science University. Starting out with some pretty technical stuff, and I, I liked those two talks, and I liked the discussant uh, reviewing some of these, talking about delay discounting, how it could be relevant to substance use and addiction, and also... Uh, that it's a little more complicated than that. One, you can have delay discount, you can have delays, and it can be beneficial, or you could have delays, um, you know, what people would uh, uh, allay 
layman's term, you know, poor impulse control. Well, sometimes what we consider poor impulse control could be beneficial. For example, if you uh, you were given $6,000 and you were told, well, hang on to that $6,000 till next year and you'll get $50,000. Unfortunately, you have a job to go to in your particular situation. And unless you buy a car, because yours is broken down in our hypothetical situation, then you will not get to work and you'll miss out on your $70,000 a year job. So in that sense, spending the, uh, you know, the old marshmallow test where they give a kid one marshmallow and say, okay, and in uh, an hour we'll come back. If you haven't eaten that, you'll get two marshmallows and, and they see if the, if the child can delay his impulse enough to get two marshmallows. Well, in, in everyday life, the circumstances are such that it may be beneficial to take the marshmallow now or spend the money, take the money now and, and spend it on something. It's it's a lot of complexity to it. So good discussions. Um, in the afternoon, it was models of addiction and treatment. Reinforcer pathology, a conceptual model of addiction by Warren Bickle, Addiction Recovery Research Center, Virginia Tech, uh, Carillion Research Institute, and Self-Sustaining Treatments for Drug Addiction and Incubation of Craving Leading to Relapse, Marilyn Carroll at the University of Minnesota. Also good talks. Now, we had discussed a little bit more, and, and I had had also in my poster presentation uh, uh uh, coverage of an article on contingency management. Contingency management for drug problems. Contingency management in the 21st century, technology in the future. Jesse Dallery, University of Florida. And also an overview of contingency management interventions in substance abuse treatment. With whom is it effective and where is it applied? Carla J. Rash. Uh, believe that's University of Connecticut Health. On the subject of contingency management, this would be a, this was part of my. I had a poster presentation where I listed in Java the articles from 1995 to the present covering addiction, and I included in that gambling and and you know attempts to to stop smoking, as well as addiction. And this article, Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, 2008, uh, volume number four, winter 2008, an effectiveness trial of contingency management in a felony pre-adjudication drug court. Douglas Marlowe, David Festinger, Karen Dugash, Patricia Arabia, and Kimberly C. Kirby. Treatment Research Institute, University of Pennsylvania. This study evaluated a contingency management program in a drug court. Gift certificates for compliance were delivered at four to six week intervals, a total value of $390. Participants 
In one condition, earn gift certificates that escalated by $5 increments. Participants in a second condition began earning higher magnitude gift certificates, and the density of reinforcement was gradually decreased. No main effects of contingency management were detected, which appears to be attributable to a ceiling effect from the intensive contingencies already delivered in the drug court and the low density of reinforcement. Pre-planned interaction analysis analyses suggested that participants with more serious criminal backgrounds might have performed better in the contingency management conditions. This suggests that contingency management programs may be best suited for more incorrigible drug offenders. So that I, that's an interesting study because it's showing where the effectiveness is. And I, I don't consider it, uh, we always want it to get good results with everything, but that's all right. That's a scientific process where we are determining where and what is effective and how to best implement it. Poster session was very good. A, a great variety of different things in the poster session. Uh, I'll go over, and it's nice that in the brochure, the program here, they, they listed them all. Uh, number 32 inspired a, a mobile video game for smoking cessation by some students at uh, Rowan University. Uh, number 33, behavioral activation for reanimation of the recovering addict. Matthew Gross of Shippensburg University and Richard Cook, Penn State University Applied Behavioral Medicine Associates. 45, Systematic Approaches to Substance Abuse Prevention. Ashley E. Bennett and Brian J. Davey, D-A-V-E-Y, Touchstone Health Services. So, and uh, the nice thing about poster sessions is it's so one-on-one. -on -one. They can just come by and talk to you, and you can talk to the poster presenters. And and uh, I found uh, I found more people that were beyond just working in in the autism field, which is, I mean, it's fine if that's your field. I work in it myself, but uh, a lot of people that worked in state hospitals, and as I had done work in community centers, work for juvenile corrections, all kinds of things. So after that evening, uh, November Tuesday, November 20th, a very good talk on, uh, and this one, this day covered verbal behavior, verbal behavior approaches to treatment. Kelly Wilson, University of Mississippi, acceptance and commitment therapy understanding and treating addiction so act uh, which is very uh, it's uh act is beyond just uh the talk therapy that we normally think and that could be uh that could be a discussion on the podcast in and of itself of uh, centering on the idea of mindfulness and the practices that the individual person can do uh to improve their own behavior and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Substance Use Disorders, 
Developmental and Evaluation of a Computerized CBT Program, this Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Program. Brian Killock, Yale School of Medicine. After lunch, Behavioral Analysis, Drug Use, and Society. Changing Drug Use and Other Health-Related Behavior in Vulnerable Populations. Stephen D. Higgins, University of Vermont. Almost said Vermouth, it's Vermont. Application of Operant Conditioning to Address the Interrelated Problems of Poverty, Drug Addiction, and HIV. Kenneth Silverman, John Hopkins University. And the always entertaining, and, and this threw me a little bit, closing remarks, reducing the nation's drug use problems through effective public policy by Anthony Biglin, Oregon Research Institute. We talked about Anthony Biglin on the podcast before, about the nurture effect. I recorded his comments and then I read later in the brochure that and I was going to play them here in the podcast but it does say that they prohibit audio and video recordings they like to take care of that ABAI does so I, I won't uh, I won't play that recording I wasn't supposed to do that but I I had to because I love to hear him talk he uh, and he he takes things a little bit beyond what you would expect. He talks a little bit in that discussion about the history of uh, the use of uh, pharmaceuticals to reduce pain and how there was a great pressure to uh, on doctors to prescribe pain medications. And he's really alluding to the idea that. Uh, uh, other things in our society, like pharmaceutical companies, uh, large corporations, uh, may be influencing our use of both uh, prescribed drugs and illegal drugs. That's, that's the impression I got out of it. So it's a very much uh, you know, concerned about out-of-control capitalism, about the influences on our daily lives that come from vested, uh, moneyed interests, and uh, how it can change public policy and perspectives. And I, so I, I can't play uh, the recording from the ABAI Substance Use and Addiction Conference. I do have a recording here I found on YouTube of uh, Anthony Biglin, and, he, and uh, I like it because it's a great, he's a great speaker, and uh, he says some similar things in this recording. Analysis uh, of uh, Skinner's pragmatism and the operational analysis of psychological terms. Steve Hayes and I published a chapter in the Handbook of Contextual Behavioral Science on what we've come to call functional contextualism. And you know, the argument here is that this is uh, basically a, you know, just a pragmatic approach asking the question of um, of what helps you to predict and influence behavior. And we changed it from control to influence for both political reasons and intellectual reasons. Political reasons, because control, is that the bothering people? Mm, I think maybe that is. Uh, but it's also not quite accurate, because you don't control the behavior in the sense that I can control this 
you influence it. You know, could you lift that, please? Maybe she will. Maybe she won't. You know, I mean, it's really influence. It's probabilistic. And uh, I, uh, but the other point I'd make is that, that that same contextual analysis is relevant to the evolution of cultural practices, and these citations are at the end of the talk as well. So the pra pragmatic view of behavior analysis invites us to be quite flexible in adopting whatever works to achieve our goals. And I submit that it's a philosophy that can function in science and in our personal lives, because if you go into the acceptance and commitment theory work, therapy work on all of the different problems that they've addressed, it's basically helping people to become pragmatic. What are your values? What's really important to you? What do you want your life to be about? What steps can you take to do that? Well, I couldn't do that. I know your mind tells you that, but what, what steps could you take? And it helps people to start moving in the direction of the things that they value, even in the context in which their mind, their mother, you know, whatever, are telling them that it won't work. That's pragmatism. That's pragmatism at the, at the individual level. But I submit that the same thing is relevant to the science. Uh, proposal. My proposal is, what are, should be the goals? My proposal is the whole of human well-being. Why not? If, if not? if not us, who will do this? Uh, I mean, you know, vast proportions of the biobehavioral sciences are devoted to studying the mechanisms of people's behavior. And I ain't just pouring money into genetics and neuroscience and so on, as though they're going to somehow figure out how to change the behavior. When they're done, we will have a very good account of the physiological processes of the people living under bridges, but they'll still be living under bridges. So you heard there some of Anthony Bigland's uh, push to use the tools of behaviorism and how some of these other fields and some of these other perspectives, although may have some interesting information, won't be useful in helping people improve their behavior, which is what we're trying to do with criminal behaviorology, and it's what we're trying to do also with the work in the Substance Use and Addiction Conference. I've got one more thing here, and this was not from the conference, but it's a, it's a, it's a TED Talk, and it's got some similar ideas, and it's it is not directly related to behavior analysis. This is the harm reduction model of drug addiction that was listed on uh, one of the TED Talks. Uh, in the notes, it says, why do we still think that drug use is a law enforcement issue? Making drugs illegal does nothing to stop people from using them, says public health expert Mark Tyndall, T-Y-N-D-A-L-L. So what might work? Tyndall shares community-based research that shows how harm reduction strategies like safe injection sites are working to address the drug overdose crisis. remember the first time that I saw people injecting drugs. I had just arrived in Vancouver to lead a research project in HIV prevention in the infamous downtown east side. It was in the lobby of the Portland Hotel, a supportive housing project that gave rooms to the most marginalized people in the city, the so-called difficult to house. 
I'll never forget the young woman standing on the stairs, repeatedly jabbing herself with a needle and screaming, I can't find a vein as blood splattered on the wall. In response to the desperate state of affairs, the drug use, the poverty, the violence, the soaring rates of HIV, Vancouver declared a public health emergency in 1997. This opened the door to expanding harm reduction services, distributing more needles, increasing access to methadone, and finally opening a supervised injection site, things that make injecting drugs less hazardous. But today, 20 years later, harm reduction is still viewed as some sort of radical concept. In some places, it's still illegal to carry a clean needle. Drug users are far more likely to be arrested than to be offered methadone therapy. Recent proposals for supervised injection sites in cities like Seattle, Baltimore, and New York have been met with stiff opposition. Opposition that goes against everything we know about addiction. Why is that? Why are we still stuck on the idea that the only option is to stop using, that any drug use will not be tolerated? Why do we ignore countless personal stories and overwhelming scientific evidence that harm reduction works? Critics say that harm reduction doesn't stop people from using illegal drugs. Well, actually, that is the whole point. After every criminal and societal sanction that we can come up with, people still use drugs and far too many die. Critics also say that we are giving up on people by not focusing our attention on treatment and recovery. In fact, it is just the opposite. We are not giving up on people. We know that if recovery is ever going to happen, we must keep people alive. Offering someone a clean needle or a safe place to inject is the first step to treatment and recovery. Critics also claim that harm reduction gives the wrong message to our children about drug users. The last time I looked, these drug users are our children. The message of harm reduction is that while drugs can hurt you, we still must reach out to people who are addicted. A needle exchange is not an advertisement for drug use. Neither is a methadone clinic or a supervised injection site. What you see there are people sick and hurting. Hardly an endorsement for drug use. Let's take supervised injection sites, for example, probably the most misunderstood health intervention ever. All we are saying is that allowing people to inject in a clean, dry space with fresh needles, surrounded by people who care, is a lot better than injecting in a dingy alley, sharing contaminated needles and hiding out from police. It's better for everybody. The first supervised injection site in Vancouver was at 327 Carroll Street, a narrow room with a concrete floor, a few chairs, and a box of clean needles. The police would often lock it down, but somehow it always mysteriously reopened, often with the aid of a crowbar. I would go down there some evenings to provide medical care for people who were injecting drugs. I was always struck with the commitment and compassion of the people who operated and used the site. No judgment, no hassles, no fear. 
lots of profound conversation. I learned that despite unimaginable trauma, physical pain, and mental illness, that everyone there thought that things would get better. Most were convinced that someday they'd stop using drugs altogether. That room was the forerunner to North America's first government-sanctioned supervised injection site called Insight. It opened in September of 2003 as a three-year research project. The conservative government was intent on closing it down at the end of the study. After eight years, the battle to close Insight went all the way up to Canada's Supreme Court. It pitted the government of Canada against two people with a long history of drug use who knew the benefits of Insight firsthand, Dean Wilson and Shelley Tomek. The court ruled in favor of keeping Insight open by nine to zero. The justices were scathing in their response to the government's case. And I quote, the effect of denying the services of insight to the population that it serves and the correlative increase in the risk of death and disease to injection drug users is grossly disproportionate to any benefit that Canada might derive from presenting a uniform stance on the possession of narcotics. This was a hopeful moment for harm reduction. Yet, despite the strong message from the Supreme Court, it was, until very recently, impossible to open up any new sites in Canada. There was one interesting thing that happened in December of 2016 when, due to the overdose crisis, the government of British Columbia allowed the opening of overdose prevention sites. Essentially ignoring the federal approval process, community groups opened up about 22 of these de facto illegal supervised injection sites across the province. Virtually overnight, thousands of people could use drugs under supervision. Hundreds of overdoses were reversed by naloxone, and nobody died. In fact, this is what's happened at Insight over the last 14 years. 75,000 different individuals have injected illegal drugs more than three and a half million times, and not one person has died. Nobody has ever died at Insight. So there you have it. We have scientific evidence and successes from needle exchanges, methadone, and supervised injection sites. These are common sense, compassionate approaches to drug use that improve health, bring connection, and greatly reduce suffering and death. So why haven't harm reduction programs taken off? Why do we still think that drug use is a law enforcement issue? Our disdain for drugs and drug users goes very deep. We are bombarded with images and media stories about the horrible impacts of drugs. We have stigmatized entire communities. We applaud military-inspired operations that bring down drug dealers. And we appear unfazed by building more jails to incarcerate people whose only crime is using drugs. Virtually millions of people are caught up in a hopeless cycle of incarceration, violence, and poverty that has been created by our drug laws and not the drugs themselves. 
How do I explain to people that drug users deserve care and support and the freedom to live their lives when all we see are images of guns and handcuffs and jail cells? Let's be clear. Criminalization is just a way to institutionalize stigma. Making drugs illegal does nothing to stop people from using them. Our paralysis to see things differently is also based on an entirely false narrative about drug use. We have been led to believe that drug users are irresponsible people who just want to get high and then through their own personal failings spiral down into a life of crime and poverty, losing their jobs, their families, and ultimately their lives. In reality, most drug users have a story. Whether it's childhood trauma, sexual abuse, mental illness, or a personal tragedy, the drugs are used to numb the pain. We must understand that as we approach people with so much trauma. At its core, our drug policies are really a social justice issue. While the media may focus on overdose deaths like Prince and Michael Jackson, the majority of the suffering happens to people who are living on the margins, the poor and the dispossessed. They don't vote. They are often alone. They're society's disposable people. Even within healthcare, drug use is highly stigmatized. People using drugs avoid the healthcare system. They know that once engaged in clinical care or admitted to hospital, they will be treated poorly and their supply line, be it heroin, cocaine, or crystal meth, will be interrupted. On top of that, they will be asked a barrage of questions that only serve to expose their losses and shame. What drugs do you use? How long have you been living on the street? Where are your children? When were you last in jail? Essentially, why the hell don't you stop using drugs? In fact, our entire medical approach to drug use is upside down. For some reason, we have decided that abstinence is the best way to treat this. His emphasis on really looking at people who use drugs in the context of the environment and really what can we actually do for them if, if prosecuting them isn't really working and it isn't stopping the flow of drugs what can we do in the and the dangers that people who are on uh substances face and uh how it fits into the life story can be very important so when they when he talked about uh the, those centers that were magically reopened with crowbars he's talking about changes in the environment and no, it, it doesn't stop, uh, uh, it did not put an immediate end to, to drug use, but it is an environmental change to look at centers like that, what he talked about. Just something to keep in mind, not, not that we all have to agree wholeheartedly with it, but uh, what we do in the community, uh, not just diagnosing someone as being a substance user can matter. I the the whole tone of this conversation I think is bringing up the question could any of us become a substance user or an addict 
if the circumstances are right, if the reinforcement is there or the lack of reinforcement for other things are in our daily life and become part of our learning history, would we go down that same road? And once you look at it like that, then you start to, it's kind of a disturbing thought, but also that might be a helpful thought because uh, the people who are substance users and addicts are the same people that we are. But what we'll do in the environment might make all the difference for whether they'll live or die or end up in recovery. So this is Criminal Behaviorology. I, it was a good conference. I hope they make an annual event out of the Substance Use and Addiction Conference. It, I think it will generate a lot more interest and it will take us into new areas where, where we are, as behavior analysts, desperately needed. We are po uh, podcasting on Podomatic and anchor.fm, uh, which means, anchor means we go to a few other areas, wherever you're at. Perhaps you can leave a review or you can write to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com. If you have any questions, suggestions, anything you want to say, we're on Blogger and you can look up Criminal Behaviorology on Facebook. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and got something out of it, maybe a new perspective, and we'll keep pursuing new perspectives if you'll keep listening. Greatly appreciated. Have a great Christmas. And a marvelous New Year. <laughs>